Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. And as always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. We've uh, turned the corner into October here and uh, arguably the greatest sports month of the entire year. We've got all the big four going. We've got college football. We've got college basketball starting workouts in advance of their season. This is when it all happens. Lots of things going on and really looking forward to the start of the NBA season and the NHL season. And we've got some good baseball races. So again, should be a good few weeks here. Absolutely here. So, and as we turn the uh, corner into October, turn the page, no shortage of big news happening in the space. We're going to talk again about Dapper Labs. We just talked about them last week with their big fundraise. They did a big deal with the National Football League. Fanatics, another one that we've talked about a lot. They're making news once again. And another football-related uh, entity, Pro Football Focus, they've got some investment of their own that we're going to discuss. But first, we've got a discussion with Jordan Levin from Scientific Games. And uh, many of you listeners may have uh, been familiar with this name. They were just in the news the other day where they did a big deal where they're selling their betting technology business, OpenBet, to Endeavor that re- is going to reshape the market on a number of levels. So we're going to talk to Jordan about uh, how that deal came together and how he's looking at the uh, broader gaming and betting market around the world. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back with you on the other side for the news of the week. Stay tuned. Very pleased to have as our guest on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Jordan Levin, Scientific Games Executive Vice President and Group Chief Executive of Digital. Levin, a 15-year veteran of Scientific Games and long and influential voice in gaming technology, has led the Nevada-based company's digital and sports betting direction and operations. He also was a key figure in Scientific Games' recent $1.2 billion sale of its United Kingdom-based OpenBet, which provides content and technology support to a wide array of sports books to global sports and entertainment company Endeavor. Levin was also previously Chief Operating Officer of Williams Interactive. Jordan, welcome to the program. Thanks. Happy to be here. So let's start with the big news here. You just uh, sold OpenBet to Endeavor for $1.2 billion, as I just mentioned. If you just walk us through what the rationale was to make that deal and where you see the scientific games focus now operating going forward with that deal heading towards closing. Yeah, definitely. Look, for, for scientific games... They made a, a clearly communicated public strategy a few months ago that, you know, it wished to focus on all things gaming, casino gaming, brick and mortar, digital gaming, iGaming, and digital gaming, social gaming. And, you know, while, while the lottery and the sports businesses are great businesses in their own rights, not as great of a fit with that sort of highest level mission statement. And these are, these are great assets. So it was a great opportunity to monetize both these assets and also take care of some of the you know, high amounts of leverage that have been you know, built up over the last few years. So that was really the rationale for scientific games. And it was really important for side games since, you know, sports betting is very much tied into, you know, the rest of the sort of called casino gaming and definitely the iGaming ecosystem. It was really important for scientific games to find the right landing spot for its sports betting business with somebody who's going to be a good sort of uh, leader for the business and also sort of uh, continue to deliver um, results and expectations for, you know, customers and ultimately be a great home for, you know, our team members. And Endeavor is exactly that. 
Jordan, I, I realize you aren't necessarily speaking for Endeavor, but what do you see as the synergies there at a, at a very high level between the two companies? Yeah, definitely. Look, I think for Endeavor, and while I can't give all the sort of inside baseball and background around how that deal came to be, I think it's quite a visionary move by them. And, and I'm quite impressed with their boldness to step forward and take this step. You know, Endeavor is a, a big, vast holding company around, you know, sports, media, and entertainment around the event space, around the talent space. It has its own, you know, own the sports properties like the UFC, like, uh, you know, professional bull riding, other stuff that I know they're looking at. And then they also have a business called IMG Arena, which is big around the sort of sports data and, um, you know, content rights business, you know, somewhat analogous to what their competitors, you know, Genius Sports and, and Radar do. And I thought this was a very bold step forward by them to go and acquire OpenBet, which, you know, I would argue is the industry's leading base level technology for sports books and also has a strong and emerging sports content and trading business in its own right. Very bold step forward. And I think the synergies are just vast and almost endless when you think about the innovation and the white space that in combination with not only IMG Arena, but the wider Endeavor business, how we can get after this. So I think it's a very exciting combination and I think it's going to be game changing from a supplier perspective. Well, I'm glad you brought up IMG Arena because I did want to get into that. And with the open bet combining with IMG Arena, we, we've seen already this year a whole lot of activity in the sports data space and with both Sport Radar and Genius going public. Now with this combination of open bet and IMG Arena coming to fruition, how do you see that sort of changing the competitive dynamic with this global sports data business? Yeah, I mean, IMG Arena is sort of, they already had a podium position, but maybe not a gold or silver in terms of uh, sports data rights. But if you look at some of the things they've been doing around the sports data that they have, both third-party deals and deals with their sort of, you know, own sports properties like the UFC, they're doing some of the most cutting-edge innovative things, you know, already in that respect, creating very unique betting experiences for patrons around, you know, golf, for instance, where they have, uh, you know, relationships with various golf associations. Know, UFC, where they're doing some things that are just completely cutting edge. And, you know, I think when you take what they're already doing, you combine it with, you know, open bets, broad-based distribution, and sort of all the tendrils that we have on a global basis, and combine it with uh, the technology and some of the trading capabilities that we've built up at OpenBet, I think you have just a very exciting combination that I think will be, will, will absolutely have a putting position for a long time in the um, sports betting B2B um, supply ecosystem. Jordan, as you look more broadly at the sports betting space overall, in the last 18 months, we've seen a huge amount of M&A deals consolidation. Do you expect a lot more M&A deals to happen in the next 12 to 24 months in the sports betting space? I do. I think that having been a B2B lifer here in the industry for 15, going on 16 years, you know, I think that the, the operator base has, you know, our B2C operator customers have led the way in terms of consolidation. And I think um, the B2B space is really lagged around that. Now it's always going to lag because there's, you know, there's going to be innovation. There's going to be a lot of startups. There's going to be a lot of niches that come in and, and that's great. And we encourage that. And we actually partner with a lot of those innovators in our business. But I do think, I, th I think now on the heels of a lot of the B2C consolidation that's happened, I think that you're going to see a wave of B2B consolidation. And this is just, just but one example that you'll see. 
within that overall trend line, obviously you're sort of referencing this push towards scale and, and getting to bigger total addressable markets here. But within all of that, how do you see the uh, landscape um, and how fertile is that going to be for smaller emerging players, newer startups? I think it's still really good. I think that the great thing about sports betting and you know digital gaming also is that there's a lot of room for innovation. I think that within sports and sports content, the way that people bet, you know, types of, you know, like marketing and push technology that's out there, for example, different types of sports like esports and virtual sports. I think there's a massive white space of innovation that hasn't been touched yet. And I think there's absolutely space for startups and for, you know, sort of, uh, you know, new R&D within larger companies. And that's one of the things that we do actually within OpenBet. We have a product specifically designed for partnering and enhancing distribution of these types of startups that oftentimes might have the best ideas, but lack the wherewithal to gain global distribution. So we did the same thing. I did the same thing leading our iGaming business in, um, in developing a product, which uh, sort of has this broad-based distribution network to support you know startup uh, digital slots providers. And we now have the same thing on the sports side. So I encourage the innovation. And for us as a larger business, it's a great pipeline for us also to partner and ultimately pursue M&A for the best and the brightest as we see them sort of emerging through our pipeline. Jordan, companies like like OpenBet serve multiple operators. You make big investments in technology. You're able to leverage that across multiple customers. But there also seems to be a trend in the industry with certain operators wanting to own all of their own technology, custom build it in-house, sort of have total control. How do you see that trend shaking out over time? The notion of operators having all their own tech versus licensing tech from third parties. Yeah, it's absolutely a narrative that's out there. It's been out there for some time. Listen, I think that there are some that have already been successful and there are others that will be successful in pursuing that, but it's not trivial. Taking an entirety of a technology stack in-house is complicated. There's a region, there's a reason that, you know, some of the leading technology suppliers exist, providing broad-based global scale. And, you know, I think that, you know, there's, um, it'll continue to be somewhat of a trend, but at the same time, there'll be, we've seen this happen before in the UK market, six, seven, eight years ago, there was a big trend in the UK, big push to, you know, insource as much technology as possible. Some operators completely failed in that endeavor, no pun intended, and are, and are now, you know, outsourced. Some were partially successful. You know, and when the dust settles, I think that there will always be space for leading, and this goes back to your consolidation question, there will always be space for leading B2B technology suppliers. And as an example, OpenBed actually powers two-thirds of the online sports bets in the UK after a big push to uh, insource. So I'm not saying that's going to be the end result in the US market, because I know that's the sort of connotations of the question, but I absolutely think there will always be a space for um, B2B supply and technology, and if not supply and technology, Guess what? A lot of the people that have done insourcing are some of our biggest customers when it comes to taking our sports content. So again, that's why I think it's important, you know, and you go back to the Endeavor open by combination, which is really, you know, a sports data and sports content powerhouse like Endeavor combining with a sports technology and sports trading powerhouse like OpenBet. And you're well diversified across the trends and to be able to play the market in a variety of ways, shapes and forms. Then the last thing I'll say about the insourcing thing, it's really interesting because we're, I'll remind the audience that, you know, we and um, IMG Arena are global businesses. The large majority of our revenues actually come from outside the U.S. market. We're actually seeing the opposite trend outside the U.S. market. We're seeing more and more operators look to outsource to best of breed and look to, you know, focus their in-house really on areas where they can differentiate. 
like marketing, like maybe their, you know, user interface, their user experience. So, you know, I think the narrative is yet to be completed and, and fully written on that topic. I want to shift gears to the uh, upcoming Global Gaming Expo, uh, broadly known as G2E, as this episode will, will drop. That event is going to be beginning in Las Vegas, Nevada here. Wanted just to get a sense of what your goals are for that conference. What do you see coming out of that, particularly now that we're at this such a historic inflection point in the maturation of the betting market? Yeah. I mean, G2E this year is going to be interesting. As listeners probably know, there's very little um, international travel allowed into the U.S. right now. So it's going to mostly be an American show, a few from some other countries. But, for example, my colleagues um, in the U.K. and most of Europe um, will not be able to make it into the show. So it's going to be a bit of a weird show, more of a pure U.S. focus, and participation will be a little bit um, fragmented, I think. But, you know, all that said, I look at it as being a great opportunity to reconnect face-to-face, many of our customers, some of which we haven't seen for, you know, coming up on two years. Great chance to sit down with them a little more intimately, talk about their needs and their requirements, and, and to showcase our technology, as always. You know, whether it's, the, whether it's the mobile technology that we power, whether it's the pricing and data, whether it's some of the great retail and promote screens that we have, great chance to also show off and showcase our products. Jordan, as you, uh, as you think about the next 12 months for you, what is your big focus sort of day-to-day as you think about what you're going to be doing over the next sort of six to 12 months? Yeah, I'm excited to, um, now that we have our, our deal sealed with Endeavor and obviously on the path to, you know, shareholder and regulatory approvals over the next few months, I'm, I'm actually excited to get back to the meat and potatoes of running the business. Uh, you know, a process uh, like the one that we do with Endeavor uh, can be all-consuming. So I'm looking to going back to doing that. Just like I said around G2E, look, looking forward to spending time with customers, um, talking about products, talking about what we can do to fulfill their needs, spending time with the teams, thinking about innovation. And then obviously, yeah, as we get into it with Endeavor, you know, starting to kick off the integration discussions as well to really uh, execute on the strategy and the vision that we have of you know, how these two great companies can come together. Well, clearly a lot ha- continuing to happen in the space. We'll be uh, tracking it across all the sport businesses platforms. But for now, uh, we want to thank Jordan Levin from Scientific Games for spending this time with us. And thank you. Take care. Thanks, Jordan. And we are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Jordan Levin again from Scientific Games for spending that time with us here. And uh, turning our attention now to the news of the week here, once again, Dapper Labs making big headlines. We just talked about them last week, did a two big $250 million fundraise. They had relationships with the NBA for NBA Top Shot and a new uh, deal with La Liga, but arguably uh, surpassed both of them with a new deal with the National Football League and the NFL Players Association, where following a similar uh, playbook, they're going to be producing NFL-related NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and uh, in a lot of instances, uh, sort of helping to commemorate and moralize in this new digital form some of the greatest uh, events in the history of the league. Now, we've been talking a lot about the NFT space here and, you know, what we thought might have been a, uh, just a brief bubble in the, in the spring now sh- is showing some real signs of some staying power. And we talked a lot about the big funding he- heading into the space with this company and others like So Rare and many others uh, emerging in the space here. But given the popularity of the NFL and how far ahead they are of anybody else 
certainly in the United States and arguably the entire world, there's a case to be made that this could do more for the maturation and the acceleration in the NFT space than anything else we've seen to date. It, it certainly could, Eric. And this is the first big foray into the NFT space for the NFL itself. Some individual players have done NFTs, but really this is the first league-level NFT deal that the NFL has done. I think what's interesting about it is it's been really characterized as an exclusive digital video deal with Dapper Labs, but that doesn't seem to preclude other kinds of digital collectibles with other partners or fantasy games with other partners or ticketing or fan clubs. And some of the ideas that uh, that Chris Halpin had mentioned and Kenny Gersh at MLB in terms of thinking about this blockchain world very broadly, this is an important deal, but I don't think it's the first deal we're going to see the NFL do in and around blockchain, digital collectibles, and NFTs. Yeah. And as the, this is obviously a very new and emerging category, but you look at some of the mature ones, QSR and beer and auto and soda and so forth, you know, all of the major properties have done pretty well in terms of kind of dividing up what the national league level rights are going to be and what the team level rights are going to be. And even though heretofore we've seen a lot of this. NFT and digital collectible stuff done strictly at the local or at the uh, league level in the United States, um, you could see a lot more I, as this category matures, it, it seems pretty logical to think that we're going to see some team-based activity as well. There could be. Again, I'm not sure where the NFL is going to go with that. I think it sounds like they have put a little bit of a holding pattern on local team deals, whereas in the NBA, a number of NBA clubs have done deals, but more focused on the you know, historic ticket stubs yep. and things that are really more related to the team IP as opposed to league-wide IP. But I do think these leagues are better than almost any other business at slicing and dicing rights, right. whether it's at the national level, if it's between local and national. And I think they'll find a great way to to maximize all of this, even though it still is a very emerging space uh, that we're talking about. Yeah. And it would seem to me that this is also going to just amplify the cadence of deals even beyond. We've had a flurry of activity over the last six, eight, 10 weeks, you know, as that sort of early summer lull that we discussed has completely reversed itself and then some, but given that everybody else in the business aspires to be like the NFL, you know, I imagine Dapper Labs uh, phones are ringing off the hook and plenty of their competitors, the same thing. I'm sure they are, and I'm sure they can't even deal with all of the uh, IP owners who want to turn their products into NFTs. But as you know, there are others out there, the Fanatics Candy property, Autograph property, that's Tom Brady's. There are a number of other major players in the space. So I do think we'll see a flurry of deals. The other thing, though, I would be on the lookout for is how the NFL and some of these leagues are going to treat the crypto sponsorships, which is really kind of a different opportunity, although within the same family. And so right now, the NFL has not done those major crypto sponsorships, but that could be another source of, of big revenue as we see FTX and Crypto.com and other crypto companies spending very heavily in sports. Yeah. And this is something where actually the NBA is ahead of the NFL in that regard, where they've done very well in dividing that space, where they obviously were first out of the gate with Dapper and doing the NBA top shot. But on that crypto sponsorship space, you've got FTX, you've got Crypto.com, you've got these kind of companies out there doing these team-based deals, whether they be jersey patches or renaming rights, 
Socios.com. That's another one where they're doing a lot of these uh, individual team-based deals. And again, different sort of thing than a digital collectible, but again, all in that sort of general blockchain family. The bottom line for these properties is that this is just found money. When you Again, when you put it in the context of what this industry has been through in the last year and a half of the pandemic and all of the uh, hits, particularly as it relates to gate revenue and make goods that had to happen on the on the media side, to have these new categories just open up. I mean, this, this is found money. It's pretty amazing. You know, if you were, call it four years ago, and thought there would be a major pandemic, which obviously nobody really predicted. But then on the other hand, there would be this thing called legalized sports betting coming to fruition and this uh, crypto NFT space exploding. It really has been a wild ride over the last three years. And it, it comes back to you know the leagues that have strong IP, strong fan bases are going to do extremely well. And they're, they're exploiting these things very, uh, very prudently, I think. Now, another interesting element of this uh, NFL, NFLPA deal with Dapper Labs, where there was an equity grant as part of this. And, you know, we talked about this with Chris Halpin a few months back when he was on the podcast here with us. And this is a general what is becoming standard playbook for a major property when they do a deal with an emerging league like this or emerging uh, company like this, where this sort of helps to lower the initial check for the company, particularly if they're emerging and still and working through their own cash flow issues. But it puts the leagues in a pretty advantageous long-term position. And we're already kind of seeing that come to fore with a deal the NFL did a few months ago with Genius Sports, where there was an equity grant as part of that global data rights deal. And even though the stock has basically gone sideways here in the first five months of Genius being a public company, you know, the long-term prospects, everybody seems to, you know, who's paying attention to this seems to agree that Genius has got, you know, some opportunity in front of them. And already the NFL is, you know, owns 5% of that company. And, it, you know, if that and if Genius does anything, that becomes a very meaningful asset. And we don't know exactly what the, the number is for the NFL dapper deal, but the same sort of concept applies that if there's really any sort of growth to be had, you know, the, the team owners are really sitting on a, a pretty compelling asset here. It, 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 as I've said a number of times on this podcast, it's nice to be the NFL and they do a very nice job of, you know, having their cake and eating it too. So I, you know, there are cash payments as part of these deals, but there are also, as you mentioned, equity grants in the case of Dapper, in the case of Genius Sports, I believe the NFL owns equity in, in Fanatics. So there is a lot of upside opportunity that they've been able to capture. But I would say it's not only in these third-party deals where they've, in a sense, exchanged rights for cash and equity. It's also, as we've talked about in the past, taking NFL on location and spinning it out, potentially taking NFL Network or NFL Digital Media spinning it out. So the leagues are getting much more aggressive, much more sophisticated about the opportunities. And I think it's so far it's, it's played out well for them. So shifting gears to another company we've been talking a lot about here in the, the last handful of months, Fanatics. And right around Labor Day, if uh, folks remember, they did a really bold move that completely upended the uh, trading card space after nearly a decade of sort of the ex existing, you know, tops led structure being what it was. They, in very rapid succession, did a bunch of licensing deals, MLB, MLB Players Association, NFL, and so forth. And what they've done now is for this new trading card entity, Fanatics Trading Cards, that doesn't have a product yet. They've got a bunch of licensing deals, but no actual product yet. They've raised $350 million from some major entities. 
at a valuation of more than $10 billion. And again, the you know, we've seen sort of crazy numbers for startups and in, in fairly immature companies. But again, what they've got is a bunch of IP rights, and that's it at this point. But, you know, a lot of people are, you know, betting very big on what Michael Rubin can do. And, you know, heretofore, the people who've done that have not been wrong very often. He has a very good track record, Eric. And, you know, when you think about what he was able to put together in such a short period of time and all of those rights, but beyond that, all of the other assets that Fanatics has, the ability to promote and distribute broadly, the fact that the player card, trading card, collectibles business is booming again, there is a lot of confidence in what Michael can do. And I think this is the first time, at least that I'm aware of in a long time, that one company has such a aggregation of rights which I think also creates opportunities in the marketplace as well. Before you'd have Tops would have one, our upper deck would have one set of rights, mm-hmm. Panini. Now yeah. one company really kind of owns them all. And I think that creates, you know, broader sets of opportunities. Well, and not only that, if you're going to do that and aggregate this, this is a company that already knows how to manage a global supply chain that you look at what they've already done with their manu- you know, apparel manufacturing business and licensing business that you need to produce and distribute large amounts of physical product around the world and do it often in short periods of time based on hot markets and events of games and that sort of thing. You know, nobody does this like Fanatics does. And so you you just sort of take that core competency as well and apply it to what we're talking about here. You know, it gets even that much more compelling. I agree with you. Now, the one, I guess, point to think about is Fanatics and, and Michael have done a terrific job building their core business but in my view, they've primarily stuck to their knitting in terms of the kinds of businesses they've bought and the kinds of sectors they operated. Now they're getting into trading cards, potentially getting into betting, potentially getting into ticketing. So it will be interesting to see how they can manage all of those new businesses in a relatively short period of time. I do think the overall strategy makes sense, but there's a lot of execution ahead of them. Yeah, and that's where the personnel issue is going to be uh, particularly important. Where yes, you know, Michael's a force of nature, and he's got this track record that we've discussed. But having sort of key people on each of these particular new verticals, and it looks like uh, Josh Luber from StockX is going to be the guy overseeing this trading card entity. But all of these other new businesses having you know real rock stars, you know, leading the day to day while he guides the overall vision. That's going to be really important. Yeah, and he has brought in Tucker Kane, who used to be at the Dodgers. Yep. Uh, they brought in uh, Matt King. So there are new executives that are joining the stable, along with some existing uh, you know, people that they have, like Gary Gertzog, my ex-colleague uh, from the NFL. So they, they've got a very strong team, and, and I guess Michael is, is really good at betting on good people. So certainly something to watch here, uh, particularly as the uh, existing rights deals uh, that these leagues have with their current players come to for, come to their end, and Fanatics, um, you know, begins to articulate what this vision is and how it's going to manifest itself to consumers. Now, in the meantime, there's this outstanding question of where this leaves. You know, Tops, Panini, Upper Deck, the existing players. Now, there are some smaller entities that. Fanatics didn't scoop up here, but you know th- there's some real retrenchment that these guys are going to have to look at to kind of figure out what the business in the total addressable market is going to be going forward. 
Yeah, yeah. Beyond uh, you know what they might be doing, these companies on a standalone basis. The question I also wonder is, you know, what does this mean in terms of fanatics potentially purchasing one of these companies, or multiple and all, of them, or multiple of them? All of a sudden, they've got a ten billion dollar at least paper valuation on this trading card business. You know, they could buy all three of the big companies and have seven billion dollars to spare, or just you know, argument's right. sake, a, a lot of money to, to spare. So you know, having this fundraise. And having this valuation may actually make it easier for fanatics to buy one or more of these other parties in the space. And frankly, for the other parties, while this has not been a good turn of events over the last six weeks with fanatics taking all the rights, if these parties get exits that that you know wind up being a lot of money, that still could be a good outcome. So there's a lot of drama, I think, left to go in this in this space. Yeah, and, and not only that, you look at the one particularly as it relates to Tops, because the big thing that Tops has is all this historical IP that all of us having grown up with these cards and you know all you know the 75 years of of history that they've got. You look at that, and if that's all sort of historical IP that fanatics can bring in again, sort of blending into all of these, you know, 21st century competencies that we're talking about here, you know, that could be really compelling. And maybe the Tops brand name lives on in some fashion. It becomes Fanatics Tops or some amalgamation therein. But, you know, all of those classic cards from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on that we all grew up with. You know, there are still lots of interesting things that you can do. And and you look at even what Tops is doing now before the, the rights convert over. They're doing all sorts of modern reissues with those old car templates and using those classic styles with modern players. And because it, it sort of combines the current talents that we all know and love with those classic card designs that we also know and love, that's been an attractive thing in the marketplace. And I don't think that's something that should necessarily go away just because the the rights are converting. Yeah, I, I do think that that IP is valuable. I think the Topps brand is valuable. I think the operational capabilities of some of these existing trading companies is helpful. And also, Eric, you mentioned the rights expiration. Fanatics is not going to get to start right away in terms of producing a lot of these cards unless it does some deals with the existing rights holders and creates some, some synergies and, and partnerships and, and, yep. and buyouts. So I do think there's a lot of reason for folks to think there might be some deals that happen. But on the other hand, you know, Michael does his own thing. And so we'll, we'll kind of see where he takes it. So much more to come on that, because as uh, Chris correctly indicates here, we're really kind of at the first inning here to use the baseball analogy, you know, starting at the 25 yard line right after the kickoff, you know, use football, you know, pick whatever metaphor you want here. We're just getting started on that story. Uh, But shifting to another one here, you know, perhaps a little lesser known company here, Pro Football Focus, entity uh, run in part by Chris Collinsworth, the uh, former NFL wide receiver and now the prominent uh, broadcaster. He's taken a round of funding uh, reported at $50 million uh, with Silver Lake being the uh, primary entity there. Now, Silver Lake uh, increasingly making its presence known in the sports space. They've invested in Fanatics. They've invested in City Football Group, which is the parent company of uh, Man City and uh, NYFC, among a number of other teams. Silver Lake has a number of other assets and increasingly making their presence known here, now making this bet on Chris Collinsworth and pro football focus here. And I guess, Chris, you have you have some familiarity with this company. 
I do, Eric. I was a consultant to the company and to Chris several years ago when they were first uh, getting started, or he was first getting started in terms of his involvement in the business. And it's a, it's a unique kind of data that uh, PFF creates. They basically grade every player on every play for pro football and for college football. And when we talk about a grade, it means you know a, a quarterback may throw an interception, but if the ball was thrown right in the hands of a receiver who then, you know, dropped it in the air and somebody picked it off, that may have still been a good pass by the quarterback. So there's this proprietary rating and grading uh, system they've created for pro football and college football, and that proprietary data is, is valuable. Yeah, and this gets to something that we've uh, talked about in prior weeks as well, that football is one of those sports that kind of lags behind, arguably, baseball, basketball, some others in terms of where they are and then sort of that analytics revolution here. And so a company like Pro Football Focus that can do that and sort of help to sort of expand their capabilities and their distribution and what they can do to sort of bring that sort of next level thinking to the sport in a deeper way that could be really compelling and to have a backing of, you know, those kind of dollars and somebody with a kind of pedigree of Silver Lake, pretty potent combination. Yeah. And I think initially PFF's focus was kind of a B2B providing data to football teams to help them analyze plays and players, help them figure out uh, players to draft from college. But now there's also a, a, a real B2C component to this, where this data can be helpful in terms of fantasy, in terms of betting, in terms of, of broader applications on the consumer level. And I'm sure the funding to some degree will be used for that. I also understand that they're looking to expand into soccer and potentially rugby and other sports. So I, I do think there's a much bigger business for them with outside of the core kind of providing sports teams and leagues data, but really thinking more to the consumer and the fan. Yeah, no doubt. And, and just the fantasy implications themselves, because, you know, I just continue to see stories and you just sort of troll on social media at all and just scan anything on there that so many of these week to week matchups among fantasy players are being decided by a tenth of a point, two tenths of a point. You know, these very fine margins of error because fans are really smart. They're very sophisticated. They do the homework and having tools like this to know like who the 10th, 12th, 14th, you know, pick a number, you know, running back down the debt, you know, league depth chart or who's available on the waiver wire to pick up, you know, some lesser known name that could make the difference for that kind of margin of victory in a fantasy competition, you know, to say nothing else of what we're talking about in the betting space, but just even in that fantasy context that, you know, fans have gotten so smart and so sophisticated having those tiny little edges. It really does make the difference for a fantasy player between defeat and victory. Absolutely, Eric. And we, we know there's fan demand for this kind of data. We also see what's happened on sort of a bigger scale with Sport Radar and Genius and how important those companies are to the ecosystem. PFF is on a smaller scale, a company that provides very valuable data. I think the other thing to recognize about this business is Chris Collinsworth isn't just an owner or investor. I mean, he has really brought analytical sensibility and skill and, and thought uh, into this and also was able to frankly promote it pro football focus you know given his you know reach and, and his celebrity and so this is more than just a, a an ex-athlete you know putting some money into a deal I think this is a real passion for Chris he cares about the quality of what is being produced and delivered and he has a platform that uh, is able to really help get it out there yeah, and this gets back to how he was as a player, and I'm, I'm old enough to remember seeing him as a player, that he wasn't necessarily the biggest guy or the fastest guy, 
but again, knew how to sort of do the work and, you know, use the physical gifts that he did have to, you know, have a very successful career as a player and, you know, sort of being both smarter and better than the next guy, you know, and sort of seeing that articulate itself now in a business context doesn't come as any surprise to me, given how he was as a player. He has a good team as well. When he bought the business several years ago, he brought over some folks. It actually, the business had been created, I believe, in the UK, uh, of all places. And so some of the folks who were in the UK who had started this business came over to Cincinnati and uh, now run it uh, with Chris. And so, again, there's a lot of depth there. And uh, I think it really reflects his passion for football and and for, for high quality. Well, something to uh, definitely keep watching as well here. And as we wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as, as always, we want to do a bit of a look ahead and get a sense of what else is uh, catching our eye in the space. And I'll go first this week here. It was a another not real great week for the uh, regional sports network business. We had a couple of carriage disputes that have uh, led to channels being pulled here. We've got the MSG networks that have gone dark on Comcast systems in large swaths of New Jersey and Connecticut. And meanwhile, the Dish Network, which has already had a history of being a tough negotiator with uh, regional sports networks, they've pulled four networks from the AT&T uh, root family from their systems. And it's basically the same dynamic as it's it's been coming for some time now that there's kind of a reckoning happening where the traditional RSN model where cable and satellite subscribers pay for these networks, whether or not they actually watch them and many of them do not, that model is crumbling. We're going through this whole sort of direct-to-consumer transformation across many sectors of American commerce, and particularly where we're seeing in the national streaming networks that we've discussed uh, so often here. This recalibration has got to now happen in the, in the regional business. And heretofore, you know, the RSNs have resisted this. They don't want to be tiered. Sinclair is the only one really kind of moving to some sort of direct-to-consumer model, and we still don't know a whole lot of what's happening there, and that's supposed to happen in six months when they come out with their D2C product. But big reckoning times for, for the RSN business. That's, that's what I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, I, I think clearly it's tough when uh, you can't get uh, a whole lot of people who don't watch your product to pay you monthly anymore. And that's kind of the the business that they've been in for a lot of years. Having said that, Eric, I think the the ray of hope may be, as you say, the, the D2C business and, and the ability to move into streaming. And that's got to happen aggressively. And then also, as we've been talking, you know, the betting and the, the advantage of these RSNs from a betting integration and in-game betting opportunity standpoint, if those opportunities are able to be exploited, I do think there is hope, but there's going to have to be quicker transformation than has been going on so far. And I I think it can happen, but it's got to be ramped up quickly. Well, the one thing that they do, the other big advantage that they have, the RSNs, is the tribalism, that fans love their local teams. And again, a lot of folks... uh, subscribing to a given cable or satellite provider in a given area. A lot of them aren't necessarily watching that RSN, but the ones they they do, uh, the ones that do, they love their teams. And, you know, we may all be NFL fans, football fans, baseball fans, whatever, but our favorite teams are our favorite teams. And that's the thing that these guys have really got to lean into. And again, the conversion is going to be hard you know, New York Yankee fans love the New York Yankees more than they arguably are going to love Hulu or Peacock or Disney Plus or any of those services. So you sort of lean into that. There could be something there. 
Yeah, I think the team affinity it does matter and I think still has a lot of value. And speaking of that, my uh, uh, look ahead or my kind of news of the week that caught my eye goes back to my hometown, Chicago, and the Chicago Bears. And they are apparently buying Arlington Racetrack, Arlington Park, the land, which is about 30 miles outside the city, and uh, discussing or threatening, depending upon what word you want to use, to build a, a new stadium there. They're still negotiating with the city around uh, Soldier Field. So a lot of drama in the Chicago area around the stadium issue, as there is in you know pretty much every municipality when that time comes for renovations or to upgrade the stadiums. But that one is fresh on everybody's mind now in the Chicago area. This is a big story. And this is, you know, and in sort of reading and talking to a lot of people who come from the area like you do, you know, the sentiment is pretty strongly in favor of this project in Arlington and the suburbs happening. And I can really see why that Chicago is a wonderful city. I've been there a bunch of times, always enjoyed my time there. It's a fantastic place, but it's really not on the rotation for any of the biggest sports events in the business. Doesn't get Super Bowls, doesn't get Final Fours, doesn't get college football playoff championship games because they don't have that next level modern dome stadium to compete with the SoFi's and the Allegiance and, you know, these modern facilities. And what they're talking about out at the racetrack here is building that kind of facility and then also doing a collateral mixed use development. And a lot of this is not just physically possible on the soldier field parcel as it currently exists. And so it's going to be interesting to see this kind of come to fore here. But if it does happen, I think it really means that Chicago becomes a major player for the biggest events in the business. It, it certainly could happen, Eric, and you're right, that retractable roof, especially in a, in a cold city like Chicago, is important. I believe the Bears are committed through a lease through 2032. I'm not 100% sure of that. There's obviously early termination fees to get out of that. So there's going to be a lot of economic wrangling going on. There's a lot of political factors that go into this. But I think what you're pointing out is, is I think, important, which is if you want to attract Super Bowls, if you want to attract some of the biggest events, you do have to have the appropriate stadium given given the climate to be able to do that yeah and again this you were talking about one of the great american cities and for that city to not be part of the rotation for any of this stuff you know it's getting a little ridiculous yep i agree so we'll we'll, there'll be a lot of fun uh fun stuff happening in the press i'm sure over the next couple of months about this but we'll keep an eye on it well that's going to wrap up another episode of sport business finance weekly For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher, and just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. 